And welcome to the first ever episode of Pacific Rim from across the Pacific, from Tokyo, Japan, to here in Seattle, Washington. My name is Jim Valley, longtime wrestling fan and uh, radio broadcaster. And joining me on Pacific Rim each and every week is one of the most legendary wrestling journalists and historians, not just in Japan, but anywhere in the world. I'm so lucky to call him my friend, the one and only Fumi Saito from Tokyo, Japan. Fumi! Yes! Wow. How are you? What an introduction. No, I'm just a wrestling fan. Nah, but let's start. This is great. Um, the first episode. So what do we want yeah. to accomplish here? For everyone listening, what do we want them to get out of each and every episode? Mm, we, we sat and talked about wrestling. <laughs> like every wrestling fans do. But, uh, yeah, if people want to know uh, details, going back history, we know we go back history and uh, we talk about details and uh, hopefully we can share some of the things that uh, people don't know about. And I think this is going to be an interesting take because you have as much knowledge as has anybody. Uh, maybe some of your uh, counterparts here in the United States, uh, Dave Meltzer, of course, Wade Keller, George Napolitano, Bill Apter, just to, just to name a few. I think you were Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman, of course. I don't know yeah. that he's a, a journalist. I don't know that you want to take anything he says at face value. But, yes, yeah, he has a ton, a ton of knowledge, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. But I think people are going to get a lot out of this podcast, and we hope that you share it and let other wrestling fans know if you're finding some value and learning some things. And uh, so please share it as you can. Uh, the Pacific mm-hmm. Rim Podcast, this is the first episode. But uh, for people who followed yeah. us on Twitter at Fumihikodayo and at Jim Valley, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Tokyo. I was in Tokyo visiting you. You're an excellent host. And not only were you yeah. kind enough to take us to Killer Khan's restaurant, which we've talked about, but... But we also went to Bull Nakano's bar. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, in this week's Observer, surprise, surprise, ah. we're, te- we're trendsetters. Because in this week's Observer, uh, Dave talks about uh, Bull Nakano's bar, and he's told the place to go to at night is the bar that Nakano owns. And he goes on mm-hmm. to say that a lot of the women wrestlers uh, work shifts there, including Nakano and Yamada, who was there when, when we were yeah. there. And mm-hmm. uh, he said that uh, Miami Toyota works there sometimes because the place is filled with wrestling photos and old championship belts. One one note about that: the championship belts are replicas. They look great, but they're they're replicas. But they're really cool. But mm-hmm. the concept is that former stars work five nights a week for five hour shifts and hang out with the fans. And Dave says it costs about fifty four dollars to get in, but once you pay that, you can drink unlimited beer. And I had a great time there. What a fun place! Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure about the price, but it varies, you know, depends on what night. But, um, uh, yeah, it's true that uh, somebody's going to be there every night. And they also you have know. karaoke. Yeah, yeah, karaoke. And also Big Monitor, who is uh, the glory days of all Japan women's wrestling in the video is always being played. That's right. A lot of the highlights. You can buy merch. You can buy uh, T-shirts and other uh, merchandise from Bolinakano and some of the other All Japan mm-hmm. legends that are that are working there. But it's it's a fun experience. I would encourage anybody to go. And, the and they are awful friendly too, right? Oh my gosh, they could not have been Bolinakano. I got to sing karaoke with Bolinakano. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're friendly. That's I great. mentioned that to my wife all the time because we sang Madonna. So now every time Madonna comes on Pandora or whatever, I was to go, you know, my good friend Bull DeCano and I, we were singing karaoke. You know, Madonna is kind of our thing. And my uh, wife, yeah, my wife tells me to shut the hell up. But. But what I wanted to bring up was the All Japan Women's Reunion show that was on September 29th. Is there is there a lot of nostalgia right for for that era of new from for All Japan? I mean, that was they they drew huge crowds. That was a big deal back in the 90s and 80s. The 90s, yeah. Every month they're doing Yokohama Arena, the you know Sumo Palace, that the Kawasaki, the Yokohama, the fairly big show every month, every four weeks or so. It's all drawing, you know, ten thousand, fifteen thousand. And at the end of the era that, that they had Tokyo Dome. But sadly enough that, that was uh, like a beginning of the end. You know. So they had pretty good six, seven year boom run, you know? And some of the In most 90s. legendary matches of all time took place yes well women's wrestling have always been pretty popular though because there was there were uh crash girls era right before that you know and there was a beauty pair you know era in 70s and women's wrestling all japan women's wrestling has always been on network television channel 8 fuji tv that, that made him pretty big you know and uh, they used to sh- show all Japan women's regular television show um, Thursday, I believe Thursday night, seven o'clock at night on network channel. People watch it, right? Naturally. It's very important to have network television here. So did you did you go to the show or did you hear about the show, the uh, reunion? Yeah. Show? I, no, I, I did not go to this reunion, reunion show this past Friday because I had something else to do. I'm sorry. But, uh, yes, um, I've seen it. And, I mean, it was, yeah, there were, it was just for fun, wasn't it? It was just for memories. It was not really competitive matches or anything. It was done uh, for their core fans, you know, more of uh, older generation fans. And uh, alumni, alumnus themselves, from Jaguar Yokota era to Bonakano era to you know all the way down to more recent stars, and, uh, 55 or so of them, and actually they were taking picture with themselves, you know. So, but that's what renew, you know, pretty much reunion shows all about. Well, know? yeah, life goes on. I mean, they probably don't get to see each other all of the time. So, yeah, why wouldn't you take pictures? Mm, no, no, no. And also, they realize that, that yeah, actually, we are wrestling fans too. You know what I'm saying? Very humble, you know. Right now in the United States, you know, I think nostalgia, generally speaking, whether it's movies or TV or uh, music, music, popular music, yeah, usually the nostalgia is about uh, twenty years. Twenty years is is kind of the nostalgia, the sweet spot for nostalgia. And so, right now in the yeah. United States, people are very nostalgic for you know the NWO mm. and the the Attitude mm-hmm. Era. There's a lot of WCW nostalgia right now. What about what about uh. in Japan? Do you guys experience that same style of nostalgia? 
Yeah, that too. But some people say nothing goes out of style in Japan. <laughs> you know, there are 50, you know, like a twist and shout, you know, that uh, rock around the clock, 50, 60 music fans, 70s music, 70s movie fans, 80s music, 80s wrestling, wrestling, you know, fans. So a um, lot of people say nothing goes out of style in Japan. And also, Is that funny? And also Japan tends to have um, more respect for elders and uh, older people and older things, whereas the United States is much more focused on youth culture and being young and hip. And mm. where, you know, in Japan, for example, elders or teachers get, get an extra bow, that kind of thing. Mm. And also that uh, there's always market for, you know, Japanese animation. 70s animation, 80s animation, 90s animation, Zero's animation, and you know today's animation. But you have nostalgia too, Blade Runner coming up. Oh, yeah, there's know? tons of nostalgia. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. lots and lots of uh, lots of nostalgia. Speaking of oh, that, that's right. Yeah, I was gonna say Anthony Noki will never go out of style. Speaking of Inoki, uh, he you know, mm-hmm. we'll get into. We talked about him on uh, my show on the Torch, which is every Wednesday. Wrestling Road Stories on pwtorch.com. And if you listen this Wednesday, yeah. we're going to do a uh, tribute to Lance Russell, who I was lucky enough to interview oh, okay. at the Cauliflower yes, Alley Club photos. Yes. in uh, 2016. And by the way, if you haven't listened to the interview, you should listen to it because it's a great yeah. interview. We talk about his history and and things like that. And we're also going to talk. Already 89 at the time. Uh, 90, he, was, he would have been 90. He was 90. 90 at the time. Yeah, oh, 90 boy. at the time. And Sharp. I saw the clip. Yeah, him and Terry Funk exchanging words, you know, a few years back from that. Yeah, I've seen the clip. But uh, talking about... Yeah, Lance, I'm going to listen to that. Yeah, yeah and I'm going to have Austin Idol on, and we're going to talk memories of Lance Russell. Does does Japan wow. does Japan yes. have, have a Lance Russell? Kind of per- announcer, they all yeah. pretty much. Uh, they all kind of died, but the uh, '50s famous announcer, '60s famous announcer, '70s and '80s, we had Furutachi, you know, Fur- Ichiro Furutachi. He went on and became an anchorman for network channel news. Out of wrestling, he was wrestling announcer though. Furutachi, Ichiro Furutachi from the '80s. He went on and became network late night news anchor person wow right who would you compare him to is there does he have a counterpart with a similar style or delivery in the united states is there anybody you could compare him to um all these people i should say that uh, they all know you know style sure you know, Jim Ross, with his knowledge, Jim Ross had his style. Lance Russell had his more down-to-earth, slow-speaking, southern style. And, you know, um, Gordon Soli, of course, you know, is different kind, you know, speaking, but different knowledge, very southern. You know, yeah, I'd say, yeah, everybody is unique and uh, legendary on their, their own way. Is there a you talk about the southern style of of announcing, and I don't think you're wrong. Is there how do the uh, how do the announcers in Japan do it? Do they focus more on story? Do they focus more on the moves? How do they how do the how do the Japanese they call a match? Tend to broadcast wrestling like your sports broadcasting. 
like you talk about like a baseball you know game or your uh, football game you know they treat it like a sport more of a sport so they call call you know moves not much of a not much of a storyline or angles but uh, more they treat this as a sports announcing and you have color commentator throwing some angles like shock you know yeah. Now See, you Japanese do... wrestling angles always been kind of a, you know, um, like a like a sport broadcasting, and the Japanese angles are always kind of a subtle, subtle, you know, not as the, you know theatrical as WWE. Now you call WWE for the, for a stream, and you also have done yeah, yeah. Um, announcing for the actual company WWE. For example, when uh, Brock Lesnar yeah. came to Japan a few years ago, yeah, yeah. How yeah. how do you bring that Japanese style of announcing with a more theatrical product like WWE? No, I'll be the very excited person, <laughs> you know, like, oh, wow, wow, you know. Actually, I uh, during the 80s, um, I did the voiceover for WWE WrestleMania 1 through 9 and WCW and, and ECW. Wow, it's like, I'm not bragging, I don't brag about those things, but I'm, I just happened to be able to do so, you know, when uh, when WWE had VHS, VHS, yeah, I did the voiceover, and WCW had a VHS in the videos, I did the voiceover, and Paul and I were friends, so I did ECW voiceover. And, uh, yeah, so it was more of a, I have to uh, introduce that uh, wrestling scenes from America and how they do it and introduce new stars and the wrestlers and superstars that are not so familiar, you know, for Japanese audience. I got to introduce them, you know, to the Japanese audience. You know what I'm saying? I got some great ideas for a future podcast. We're going to have to talk about uh, ECW's influence in Japan. Maybe we'll do that one of these days real soon. I think that influence each other, I think. Yeah, exactly. Cuz they took it, they took it from initially from like a people like FMW and Onita. Right. And then they actually brought in people like Terry Funk, Sabu, Cactus Jack, you know, all working for FMW and the Japanese independence scene at the time. They, Paul Heyman, actually brought them over and did the exact same matches. Well, let's you know? do that. Why don't we do that? Why don't we do episode number two? Let's do a little focus on Japan and ECW. How about that? Oh, yeah, they're brothers. Yeah, yeah. let's do that. And, okay. Uh, and surprisingly, Paul Heyman was studying Japanese wrestling for quite a long time. And he, he kind of knew what goes over and what, what works and what doesn't. Well, let's do yeah. that. Let's do episode number two next week. We will talk about ECW in Japan. How about that? That's sure, people sure. Listen. Well, let's talk yeah. about let's talk about some questions. Let's get some questions here from yeah, from yeah. Twitter. Someone asked. They did a hashtag Ask Fumi at Jim Valley. Sure. You can ask us uh, at Jim Valley and at Fumi Hiko Dayo, F U M I H I K O D A Y O Fumi Hiko Dayo. Yes. And uh, one of the things he talked about on Wrestling Road Stories of the Torch, and we'll probably get into more detail maybe down the road here on Pacific mm-hmm. Rim, talking about the famous Antonio Inoki Muhammad Ali match in Japan. Was it was it a big thing? Of course, it was a big thing. Muhammad Ali, the the 
world heavyweight boxing champion at the time. Not the former champion, he was still champion at the time. Yeah? And Antonio Inoki, NWF. Uh, that's Japanese world title, but he was champion. So wrestling is world champion against boxing is wrestling champion. One on one in Tokyo. Of course, it was a big deal. I was ninth grade, but uh, <laughs> it was funny thing is though, uh, Inoki Ali match took place Saturday morning, eleven o'clock in the morning. You know why? Because it was Friday night prime time in New York. He broadcasted live from Tokyo into closed circuit in America. Live. Huge. Do you think it made money in Japan? Did Ali get his full payout? Do you know? Uh, there's a lot of theories to it that uh, New Japan couldn't pay them the full amount and uh, there was a lawsuit here and there, here and there, a lot of things and also closed circuit accounting and, and, and uh, who's going to pay who or what was right and what was wrong. So there are so many theories to it and it's been 40 years and a lot of little details come you know, one, one at a time. So it, it's impossible to say that what was the most accurate um, account on it, you know what I'm saying? But uh, it was a huge deal. Then it was Vince McMahon Senior and Vince McMahon Junior. That today's Vince McMahon. He was still what, 31 years old at the time, and uh, they got excited. And uh, yeah, he put Inoki's name on the map in America too. See, Muhammad Ali, of course, worldwide superstar. Inoki, huge superstar in Japan at the time, but was not as famous in America. But after the Ali fight, he pretty much became pretty much famous in America too, right? The Japanese wrestler who fought Muhammad Ali. Oh, that guy. What was the reaction in Japan after the match? Did people think they got ripped off? Did people look at it as Anoki fought valiantly? What was the what was the perception after the fight? Very interesting thing was that the perception had changed slowly but surely over time. It was like the biggest flop, biggest disappointment at the time. And the people didn't have knowledge or knowledgeable enough to see that kind of fight. Of course, the, the wrestling wrestler and boxer fight in what rules? And uh, most of the wrestling moves Inoki would do was banned. You cannot throw, you cannot chop, you cannot you know, kick. Um, as soon as you go uh, into, the, into the wrestling on the mat, on, on, on the ground, ground position, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, you have to get up again. What would you do? So Inoki had to do what he could do, and Muhammad Ali did what he could do too. And at the time, people didn't really understand what would happen if boxer fought wrestler or wrestler fought boxer, vice versa. But it did happen. And that was, see, people thought it was fake. No, it was not fake. Little, all, all those little details come out little by little. And 40 years later, Nah, that uh, it was treated as a, as a, something really exciting, really exciting. Because perception have changed over over the decades. Was it ever going to be a work? Sense? Was it ever going to be a worked match? Uh, 
Muhammad Ali apparently thought it was going to be a demonstration or just an exhibition coming to Japan. But as uh, soon as the whole point of Inoki's side was that the, don't let Ali's people leave. See, as soon as they find out there wasn't going to be any scenario or rehearsal to it, that uh, they start saying, like, no, you can't do this, you can't do this, you, you can do this, you can't do this. And then, but the, the whole point was to make the match take place. You know what I'm saying? Because all these people, are all, 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 like after a few days, they were all ready to pack up and leave. I ain't doing it, right? The whole point of New Japan and Inoki's side was that the, not let Ali and his crew leave the country. Make sure that match actually takes place. The, the whole point of it. So Inoki's people agreed with everything Ali was saying. You cannot wrestle. You cannot do the karate chop. You cannot have a karate kick. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. You know what I'm saying? Did so, uh, did Baba have a reaction publicly or privately to the to the Noki Ali fight after it was done? Uh he made sure he made no comment whatsoever. So pretty much pretended like he didn't watch it because it's like acknowledging other sides. Inoki's New Japan and Baba's Old Japan's always gonna be biggest biggest rival. Channel 4, Channel 10, Inoki's people, Baba's people. It was just like we had two kings in this country. So we got another question here. This was from uh, Facebook. Huge deal. Okay. David yeah. Rapp. He wants to know, and maybe we could go back a little farther, but he wants to talk about uh, uh, someone who's still on the scene, the super <laughs> strong machine. Sure, sure. So should we should David. we go back? To, should we go back to the origin of just the machines first, just briefly? Sure. Nineteen eighty four. Nineteen eighty four. He uh, was created. Actually, it was going to be Kinnik Man uh, animation, you know, exact uh, Kinnik Man that the animation character, but uh, they did not, you know, complete the deal, you know, that uh, animation people in New Japan couldn't come up with um, the agreement. So, agreement. Sort, of like, so, sort of like Jushin Liger, it was going to be a different character. Yeah, it wasn't going to be Strong Machine. But the Strong Machine itself was created very last minute that the day came, you know? And uh, there's no deal, right? But the mask guy has to, you know, appear. And uh, it was actually Inoki himself. Strong Machine, that's it, you know? Inoki came up with a lot of things, though. So it was Strong Machine. Junji Hirata. You know, coming home from Calgary, Canada. Calgary, he was a Sunny Two Rivers, Native American character, Japanese person doing it. <laughs> How's that? Uh, well, there's yeah. been so many, uh, uh, you know, Billy Two, uh, Billy, uh, Billy uh, White Wolf, and Iraqi being an Indian. There've been sure. <laughs> there've been Mexicans playing Indians. There's always been. There's just probably like, been fewer Carlos Indians. Colon. Yeah. 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 Yes. Well, Killer Khan, Japanese person doing Mongolian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and the, Great Kabuki was saying he's from Singapore, right? <laughs> and the, the, the Mongols, Beppo and Ghetto Mongol. 
American white person. <laughs> yeah, there have been lots and lots of people right, portraying right. characters and actors. Well, we should there. There's a show right there too. We could. Right, but so it was August of 1984. The first original Strong Machine debuted August of 1984. It was actually the tour after all the Ricky Choshu's group left. Fifteen guys. You know, Ricky Choshu, Kuniaki Kobayashi, the Animal Hamaguchi, the Yoshiaki Yatsu, the, uh, every single Choshu's group left New Japan. At the time, original UWF, like Maeda, the Takada, the, all those people already left. So New Japan lost about 30 wrestlers in the course of 1984, and they had a pretty much skeleton, um, skeleton you know, crew. But Inoki said, hey, bring all those guys from back from Calgary. Cobra, Hiro Saito, Super Strong Machine. It's like all of a sudden you have, hey, got a new crew, whole new generation of the, the Japanese heels. So it was good. Junji Hirata. So was he what put was in, uh, what, what level was he promoted at first? Was he pushed at first? Single match against Inoki, debut. Yeah. See, one good thing about Inoki's philosophy is, though, do you remember Naoya Ogawa? That uh, yeah, the Olympics was he silver medalist? Yeah, and also world world you know World Cup judo champion. In traditional manner, like Sakaguchi would train, he will he would train this person for six months and put a black tights and black shoes and put him in the first match to debut, right? Whereas Inoki's philosophy, no, 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 put this guy in the main event today. Then start from the top and give the ball and have him run and run with it. You know what I'm saying? More of a Lex Luger method. Yeah, or Nikita Koloff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If it works, it's going to be a moneymaker. If it doesn't, hey, we failed. We tried. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, tried. So, just like that worked with Ogawa, the, the, the super strong machine was put in main event right away. Then had a KY Wakamatsu as a heel manager, which is rare. Very rare to have a manager manager in Japanese ring. You know, different heat. See, Riki Choshu or any other Japanese heel at the time, they never had managers. You know, like working manager heel. But uh, uh, KY Wakamatsu was also brought back from Calgary and, and, and uh, got that, you know, whole new team. And he uh, was the, Wakamatsu was the, was the manager and he had, a, he had a megaphone, didn't he? Yep, yep, yep. And actually, he was doing it before Jimmy Hart. And Jimmy Hart saw that in, in Japanese you know, magazine and said, you know, I can use that. And I, I was told by Hulk Hogan, so this is true, that uh, K.Y. Wakamatsu had the, the megaphone, megaphone before Jimmy Hart. Did Hart get the inspiration from Wakamatsu, or is that just coincidence? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, 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 inspiration. Yeah, I can do it better kind of thing. So at what point did uh, did Bill Eady and Andre the Giant fit into the... Uh... Um, uh, actually, it was the following year, 1985. After one year, Super Strong Machine, Hiro Saito, 
Shinji Takano, the trio. Shinji Takano, actually younger brother of Joji Takano, the Cobra. Shinji Takano and Super Strong Machine, Hiro Saito as a trio, left New Japan uh, following year and joined Riki Choshu's group, okay? They're working for all Japan. Then Inoki had an idea, you know what? I can do this better. And then uh, put Super Strong Machine mask on under the giant and mass superstar we can create that so it was more like uh telling you know the, the wrestling audience and also you know, sending message to hirata that who the hell are you kind of thing how often was uh, talking about uh, andre he was a he was a heel as a machine how often was he a heel in japan all the time he was always heel never baby face. never baby face until he switched side to all japan and and then he you know teamed with Jan baba that was more like a last five years of his life you know in prime time working for new japan inoki's big rival always always heel since between what uh 73 to 86, 87, yeah. About 15 year period, he was always heel, under the giant, working heel. Now, as far as the machines, uh, here in the yeah. United States, they, they didn't really go very well. I, I, Me personally, I always liked the whole thing where a heel or a baby face comes back under a mask and, and tries to get away yeah, with it. Me yeah, personally, yeah. I always enjoyed it, but apparently things like the Midnight Rider and stuff didn't always draw. How, how successful were the machines in Japan? Uh, machines as Andre and Master Superstar, you mean? Yeah, just the whole crew. Uh, Andre and Mass Superstar's version of Super Strong Machines, they only worked one tour, then switched back to original you know, character. It was more of a, I think, rib uh, to, you know, to whomever left, left. See, Super Strong Machine thought he became star and left New Japan and joined Choshu's group, right? So that was uh, that the Super Strong Machine done by Under the Giant and Mass Superstar as a combo was done as a rib, you know, uh, for original Hirata mask. Only worked one tour, and then switched back to Andre and regular Mass Superstar following tour. So they they were strong machines only one tour in Japan. So, so didn't they laugh? So super strong machine is still active today. He, yes and no. Uh, he yeah by Junji Hirata, but then again he's like fifty nine and he hasn't worked in years, but he hasn't retired. So I'd say yes, super strong machines still exist. And also, it was a gimmick from 1980s. So a lot, a lot of wrestling fans or the wrestlers who grew up watching it have real fun memory on Super Strong Machine, the whole getup, you know, mask and the the, the, the design of the mask. And it's kind of like, you know, clown is smiling. You know what I'm saying? And uh, the design was good. And... Uh, yeah, a lot of people cop try to copy the design too, and uh, oh, people even people like MMA's pioneer Sakuraba, you know, he come into MMA match wearing super strong machine mask. 
like Sakura Bamashi. So, like th that would tell you, like this kid was wrestling fan as a kid. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun memories. You know, fun memories. What do you think his biggest accomplishment is? What do you think uh, he's best known for? Oh, uh, probably pro uh, the super strong machine. You mean? Yeah. Single match program against Fujinami, probably, and that uh, they still talk about it today. Um, um, uh, after the match, Fujinami grabbed the microphone and said, "You are Hirata, aren't you?" So, as if you don't know. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that was the biggest, like the, the very famous line. So, you are Hirata, aren't you? And then people go, ah! This is like a, you know, just like a tiger mask. Everybody knew it was Satoru Sayama, but everybody was like a plain smart that they pretend that they didn't know. Same same case with the, the super strong machine. Pretty much all the serious wrestling fans knew it was Junji Hirata, but uh, you know, you kind of pretend that, hey, uh, that the parts are known, parts are now, you know. That uh, so, uh, Fujinami's mic after the matching, you are Junji Hirata, aren't you? It's like uh, people popped, and they still talk about it today, 30 years later. What was Hirata's re What was Hirata's reaction? He took off his mask and threw right at Fujinami's face. That was a good part too. Then, as, just as soon as Hirata's face showed, somebody put a big, you know, towel over his head, and he ran. It was done. It was done a lot better than what I just said, though. You know, yeah. the timing is everything. So, as soon as Fujinami said, "You are Junji Hirata, aren't you?" and then the strong machine start taking off his mask and threw, you know, throw that mask right at Fujinami's face. Then just as soon as that happened, Hirosairo or somebody come in and put the big white towel over his head, they ran. Oh, I didn't see his face. You know what I'm saying? So this a lot like Mexico. Yeah, it's been done because um, um, five, six years before that, Inoki and Mass Superstar, you know, had a single match program. And the stipulation was that if... <laughs> Mass superstar loses, he has to unmask, right? And as soon as he unmasked, somebody's gonna put a towel over his head, he runs. Oh, I didn't see it. The people go, Oh, no, I didn't see the face. And so, like, you see invisible sign of to be continued. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but that's and what just, wrestling is all about to be continued yeah so we continued yeah yeah well, because smash superstar worked with mask another 10 years after that you know and uh yeah very successful masked person right maybe the last person because we haven't seen famous mask mask guy since oh maybe patriot you know but uh, not so much you know so we got another question here this is from Scotty yeah. at uh, wrestler weekly he sent this to me in a in a direct message but title match thing yeah so here's the question let yeah. me read this for uh, for everybody listening so the sure, question sure, is uh, sure. i think he's kind of talking about uh which uh, american world titles and the defenses mm. in japan or against a famous japanese wrestler had the most impact uh in japan so he asks which uh -huh. event had the bigger buzz or most talked about world title matches and he asks between actually Flair versus most 
Well, yeah, most talked about in the world title match in Japan ever, ever, was 1955 Luthes against Ricky Dozen at the Korakuen Stadium, stadium show, ballpark, you know, drawing like a 55,000 in 1957, doing 60-minute Broadway. Now, was that for the NWA title or the international title? Actually, it was NWA world title, but the the name NWA was not famous until the 70s. At the time, when Luthes comes in, the world heavyweight champion, you know what I'm saying? No WWF or AWA or any other, you know, there's no organization name. He was the world heavyweight champion. But was he NWA champion or was he just yeah, billed NWA as the champion. World? Okay. But they didn't build the no, NWA. No, 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 NWA. They just built it as the world title. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Well, 50s audience didn't know the difference. Name plus international title you just brought up. Very good. Ricky Dozen's international title was named international title after, and when he held that title, people thought it was a world title too. You know what I'm saying? Very yeah. interesting. It's more of an offspring or a spin-off of, you know, Luthes' title. And it was treated as, Ricky Dozen's international title was treated as world heavyweight title at the time. Well, here's the question that he has about uh, other matches. Maybe you can kind of categorize. Let me read sure, this for sure. the audience here. Uh, matches between Flair and Tatsumi Fujinami. That was 91. Yeah. Flair versus 91. Martel was, what, was that 84 or 85? 86, 85-ish. Yeah. 86, more like. Yeah. Well, wasn't Martel, wasn't that uh, belt versus belt Martel? So he was AWA champion. Uh-huh. That would have been 85, yep. Yep. probably. Uh, Inoki yeah. versus Backlund, Saruta versus Martel, or any of the Baba versus Race world title matches? Uh, as far as Giant Baba and NWA title goes, I think the biggest buzz and biggest um, um, newsworthy uh, biggest event was Baba beating Jack Briscoe for the first time ever. It was uh, it was seventy four. Mm-hmm. First Japanese wrestler actually winning NWA title. No referee bumps, no DQ, nothing. He actually pinned the champion one, two, three, and actually belt, you know, championship changed hands and it was recorded. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So December 1974, Giant Baba beating Jack Briscoe for the first time. That was the biggest NWA title switch. See, he won, Jan Baba won NWA title two more times, beating Hardy Race twice, but it was returned in five days or so, and then people kind of had an idea. Yeah, Baba can beat and, and become, beat Hardy Race and become NWA champion for one week, and by the time Hardy Race goes home, title will be back to Race's waist, you know, because you did it too many times, right? Did it cost him? I think so. I think so. And then also always had the people like Pat O'Connor with him, you know, to oversee the product. When Baba beat Jack Briscoe or when Hardy Race was beat, somebody like Pat O'Connor was always in, in the corner. Just to make, make sure, sure that everything uh, was right. Yeah, make sure that the belt went everything. home when it was supposed to. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, the the even content of the match and uh, how 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 it was presented and the whole thing. 
Did Baba pay $25,000 for each rain? 25, maybe more at the time, because 25,000 is more like a wrestler's one week guarantee. You know, coming and you know, having, having Jack Briscoe or people like Harley Race, um, he would pay Harley Race or Jack Briscoe 25,000 a week for sure. And don't you think 25 grand seems kind of inexpensive for title change? Well, I thought I read in Maybe Briscoe's. In I thought I read in Briscoe's book, book like you like the, yeah, the deposit yeah. was 20 grand, and Br- Briscoe was like, "Yeah, you're gonna pay more than 20 because the deposit is 20 grand, so I need that covered at least." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sure that uh, um, he, Baba ended up paying him more. Speaking of world title rings that Baba paid for, what about uh, when Jumbo Saruda uh, won the ah, world title? It was like a skipping, yeah, like uh, it was an 84. Yeah. February of 84, Jumbo Saruda beat Nick Bakwinkle for AWA title in Japan. And he had, what, a five-month reign? Yeah, something like that. At the time, I, I, yeah, I asked Bakwinko too that uh, he, at the time he had had AWA title over six years and needed change, change. And uh, it was a time that uh, Jumbo Tsuta was becoming the number one, you know, the main event for all Japan and Baba was stepping down, right? You need one, some something dramatic to make people believe Jumbo Tsuda uh, is the number one guy now for the, in 1984. And actually, yeah. Oh, I'm sure they paid just the same amount or more. It was a deal between Baba and Vern Gagne, not Bakwinko, though. How yeah, big Bakwinko of a deal still, was it in Japan? How big of a, how big of a, of a, how did fans react? Probably recognized recognized Jumbo Tsuruta as number one guy in for all Japan, because Baba was the only at the time no at the time Baba was the only Japanese wrestler who had who held NWA World Title. Jumbo Tsuruta became first Japanese wrestler who actually became AWA World Heavyweight Title Championship champion. So he was new, right? Did Baba try to get the AWA or the uh, the NWA belt for Shruta? Uh I don't think Baba wanted him to be, because well, it only changed. But uh, um, if history goes as it is, that uh, Baba was always going to be the only Japanese wrestler who ever held NWA title for real. And it probably would have been harder too, because Crockett was starting to get a hold on the, the mm-hmm, NWA mm-hmm. title in that time period. So they would have been. Plus, also uh, that uh, yeah, having Jumbo beating Ric Flair in Japan, you have to return it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, the switch was smooth because the AW title, uh, you know, that the switch from. Nick Bakwenko to Jumbo, Jumbo to Rick Martel, who was relatively unknown in Japan, and they people thought that guy is like new superstar. You know what I'm saying? It worked better, better than switching back to Bakwenko. Then bring Rick Martel as your new superstar into Japanese market. For the first, not not for the first time. Actually, he had tours before, but the, generally speaking. 
that uh, Japanese wrestling, wrestling fan believed Rick Martel was a new superstar. He beat Jumbo. So did he draw in Japan for, for during his uh, AWA title reign just by beating Jumbo? Uh, was not a considered as draw because he didn't have enough tour. Yeah. You know, he only came in probably once as a champion. Then six months later, he was beaten by Stan Hansen in Meadowlands. So, wow! So it was done quick. You know. So what about okay. uh, speaking of Martel? What about when uh, he and uh, Ric Flair, Flair had the NWA versus AWA championship yeah. match in Japan? Was that a, was that a big deal? Yeah, yeah, but uh, Flair it was Flair against Martel, right? Yeah, he, I think he was treated bigger in Wrestling Illustrated than what it, you know what it actually was because he was. Uh, it was actually uh, produced because um, this fall season, you know, September, October of new TV season for 1985, all J- Baba's Old Japan was put back into prime time, you know, uh, Saturday, Saturday, 8 o'clock at night, network channel, you know. Um, Baba needed a program that, you know, to have all kinds of superstar coming in. That tour had not just Ric Flair and Rick Martel, but you had Stan Hansen, you had a Road Warriors, all superstars made, made, you know, came in for one tour. So I don't think it was history, you know, historically as big. On paper, yes, AWA against NWA, a double title match in Japan, it sounds big, but it was double count out and very predictable and it was visible in like really serious wrestling fans eyes that Rick Martel was not quite in Flair's league you know what I'm saying yeah 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 and double count up and it was really predictable and the only way see, Baba later on later like later on in 80s into early 90s giant Baba as a booker as a producer he dropped all the DQ finish and double count out finish. Everything did Every single match became became pretty much clean finish, though. So I'd say that uh, this Rick Mateo Flair was the last double count out they've done. Interesting. The double count out. Yeah, double count out is so disappointing, right? Well, let's talk about a couple of other screwy finishes sure. in, in World Oh, uh, actually, uh, um, it, as far as other other major title goes, ni- 1980s, uh, it was probably like in 78 then. Inoki, I guess, Bob Backlund was a really big deal, too. Yeah, I think it was, because, se- was it 79? I want to say it was 79. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when Inoki actually won the title, yeah, but yeah. Uh, for the flu, yeah, Inoki and Bob Backlund had their first match in '78, though. Okay. Yeah, because uh, only a few months after he beat uh, Bob Backlund, beat Superstar Billy Graham, he came into New Japan and had a single match against Inoki, WWF Champion Backlund against NWF Champion Anthony Inoki, double title. It was not a double count-out. It was 60-minute Broadway. Little bitter. You know what I'm saying? Kind of predictable, though. Yeah. 
pre predictable, but it was better than double count out. See, it's really disappointing when two wrestlers go out of the out of the ring and start fighting, and people go, uh oh, uh oh, right? Yeah, or they get distracted when obviously a world title is at, you know, at stake, and it's like you'd think you'd be really in real life, you'd be really focused on winning the title, but. What are you gonna do? Yeah, like in the, yeah, the two wrestlers go outside and start doing moves outside ring to go back, go back. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? What was the what was the yeah. reaction when when Inoki won the won the world title? It was kind of a weird finish with Backland. Because Tiger GC interfered. Yeah. But it was used that the first title defense. See, Inoki beat. Bob Backland in of all places, Tokushima, you know, like a like far away Tokushima, and then came back to Tokyo following week as a champion, and def had a first title defense against former champion Bob Backland in Tokyo. Okay, and then Tiger Jit Sin in a fair the match, and there was a DQ, so it gave Inoki reason that I'm going to forfeit the title. So actually, he lost WWE title without actually losing it. <laughs> How's that? What about... I'm very unhappy about that. What was the reaction when Inoki went to Madison Square Garden in the minds of the Japanese fans as WWF champion uh, and he faced uh, the Iron Sheik while Bob Backlund defended these Iron world titles. Yeah, it was against... Bob, Bob, Bobby Duncan. Yeah. He and... was done very, very carefully. Yeah, very sneaky. It was not a... <laughs> Well, sneaky, but very carefully, because all the newspapers and photographers and journalists, serious outside, you know, wrestling community journalists were there. That uh, Bob Backlund and Bobby Duncan match was treated as Texas death match instead of title. Texas death match. And Backlund didn't wear the world title into the ring. Coming into the ring, he didn't. Right. And then he was photographed. That guy did not wear the belt. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the evidence was there. And also, Vince McMahon Sr. had press conference in front of Japanese media saying that uh, Inoki will be defending his World Martial Arts title against Iron Sheik tonight instead of having the title match against uh, Bob Becker and so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, oh, oh, and they took note. So he switched from WWE title match to world martial arts title defense by Inoki. They did very carefully, though, you know. What was the reaction in Japan to all of this? Because I guess technically, Inoki never officially lost the title. Of course, it was never acknowledged that he won the title either in the United States. Right, right. So I think his reaction is the same 30 years, 40 years, 30 years later now, 35 years later, that uh, it happens but it actually didn't happen and oh well you know what I'm saying it's on tape what you think is what you think did it help or hurt Anoki's career at the time uh didn't do much because see Inoki challenged Bob Backlund probably three or four times before that title match and dominated the match you know and then for some reason he didn't win the belt 
60-minute Broadway or two out of three fall match, but the Inoki only had one fall. Therefore, no official switch or somebody like Tagajit Singh, you know, interferes in the one DQ um, out of two out of three fall matches. One DQ finish was involved. Therefore, no title switch. You know what I'm saying? Very detailed, detailed things. How was Bob Backlund perceived in Japan during his during his world title reign? People liked him. Um, probably most wrestling fans, older fans, if you ask them, they like Bob Backlund over Flair. Really? Why is you that? You can have a real good wrestling match. Well, you can have real technical wrestling match against Inoki. Real good technical wrestling match against Fujinami. Uh, he can be baby facing and, uh, or, you know, have a single match against Dusty Rose in Japan. You can have single match against Hulk Hogan in Japan. Um, had a tag team made Inoki and Baba in the Baba background pair one, one, one year. He was treated as very, very special and no gimmick, very good wrestler. Well, but in America, Backland was boring, right? Yeah, you know, I saw him. But, I never got to see him much because we didn't, you know, cable hadn't really exploded during Backland's until, run. Yeah. But I loved him right. in the magazines. I mean, I had in, in my mind, I had him as this amazing wrestler who, you know, sort of like a like a babyface Kurt Angle, you know, just a straightforward mm-hmm, guy. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally sure. saw him, I was like, oh. Yeah, he's kind of boring. Kind of lame, yeah. boring. Yeah. Huh? But he was my hero well, in the magazines. Japanese, yeah, Japanese wrestling fans always loved guys like Carl Gotch, Billy yeah. Robinson. You know? Yeah. Clean cut American wrestlers who can wrestle. You know what I'm saying? Whereas, yes, Tiger Jeet Singh, Abdul the Butcher, the Sheik, Stan Hansen, Brody, all big heels, big star. But every now and then, you need. You know, clean-cut American wrestler. The people loved them. I think they did. I enjoyed them too. So, what about the last yeah. question? Is about I guess probably the most recent uh, switch in '91, which was the uh, Flair versus uh, Fujinami, Fujinami for the yeah oh, the NWA too. Yeah, in the building, people believed Fujinami had won the World Heavyweight Championship in the ring. And actually, he wore the belt and got out of the ring. And the people probably left the building thinking you just witnessed the world title change, huh? But uh, it was very carefully, too, that uh, they taped uh, in a segment where, you know, they had press conference and backstage in Tokyo Dome where Flair came in and took the belt away from Fujinami. And Fujinami said, why, why? There was a ref bump, you know, which was not acknowledged during the match. But uh, they've shown a ref bump and other things and a false finish one, false finish two on WCW television. So American audience would believe that uh, there was no title change, whereas Japanese audience thought there was title match, I mean title change. You know what? But these things have always happened in 60s and 70s and 80s. It just was not witnessed by too many people. You know, that the flare against Hardy Race in New Zealand or Australia, or when you, when you have 
Blair or race against Brody in Texas, people went home went home thinking that you've just witnessed title change. Or even in Minnesota, when I lived in Minnesota, Hulk Hogan pinned Nick Bakwinko one, two, three in the middle of the ring and actually wore a belt and got out of the ring. People have left the building thinking you've just witnessed the title change. It happened, right? So it's like, it was nothing new. It was a different era that they have to come up with very good scenario, very precise idea of what to present on television the following week. And, you know what I'm saying? And it was, uh, the, the match in Japan was the card, they promoted it as Starcade in Japan. Right. Um, New Japan, at the time, New Japan and WCW became a business affiliate. The NWA, uh, also that was uh, during the time they didn't make uh, clear distinguish between WCW World Heavyweight title and NWA World Heavyweight title. title. And for a while there were two titles, right? And uh, what Flair was wearing was this Flair design gold belt. So you automatically believe it is the World Heavyweight title. Not new design, but the flare belt. Yeah. Now they announced that Inoki, or Inoki, sorry, that uh, geez, that Fujinami was the yeah. uh, was the NWA champion in the Japan. NWA champion. Yeah, how yeah, did that go that. over? People. Oh, if you're a serious wrestling fan, you have to think Burko, because Baba was the only. NWA World Heavyweight Champion ever and also there's a myth in Japan a very strong myth that NWA World Heavyweight title is the undisputed World Heavyweight title you know what I'm saying all the press believed it too and also that news, you know, sports pages like uh, Tokyo Sports or Gang Magazine historically always, you know, written up the things like NWA is the oldest organization, NWA is the undisputed World Heavyweight Championship, and the story, you know, it's not, it's not true, but that the NWA World Title, that the, the, the lineage goes back to Frank Gotch or something. That's not true, but always had those things. So NWA was very, very special, always. And what about yeah. when uh, Fujinami came to Florida to uh, settle the score with Flair to, to finish this whole feud up? Uh, yeah, like uh, two, two or three months later. Yeah. Uh, it was not, believe it or not, was not televised. It was only on VHS. So only hardcore fans bought uh, you know, a VH tape and watched it, or you know, this is no more. But you always had the, the videos, rental video place, right? Not today's wrestling fan, but uh, when things were VHS tapes, you know, you go rent a video, you know, but only hardcore watch it, you know. But all in all, Fujinami went to Florida and lost the man in the return match and came home. Which was okay. End of the story. End of the drama. You know? Don't you think? But they didn't really build it up. It sounds like it just sort of like the the the, the NWA world title reign that time just kind of faded away, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the back there, people's mind that uh, you can win NWA title, but you're never going to keep it forever. Somewhat, somehow, 
you'll return the title like shortly after. You know what I'm saying? Kind of like kind of like a fairy tale. It's American title. Yeah. So real quick, let's do one more that just came to mind. It's not part of the question. What about in the dying days of the AWA oh. when, uh, yeah. when Mr. Saito won the AWA right. belt? It, at the Tokyo 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 Dome. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the very last champion, Larry Zabisco. You know? Right. And uh, it was good that uh, Masa, at the time, he was like already 47 years old, Masa. And he wasn't even the main event. See, Tokyo Dome show usually have like a, you know, 12, 13 matches, right? AWA World Title title match was like, I wouldn't say mid card, but uh, like a third or fourth from top. If AWA World Title was such so important, you know, should be main event. But uh, yeah, it was good that uh, nostalgia too. Everybody knew that Masa Saito used to be AWA wrestler, you know. And uh, he was the one who brought the last AWA champion, Larry Briscoe, uh, Larry Briscoe to Japan. So it was treated like something nostalgia almost. And people knew going in, Masa would, will win this. Masa would win this. And sure enough, he won the title, AWA World title. And then two months later, he went to St. Paul, Minnesota, and dropped the title. <laughs> so sort of like a it gold was okay watch. though, like a gold watch. In a way, yeah. In a way, and also serious wrestling fans knew that the AWA was dying at the time. It was 1990, you know. WWF, Hulk Hogan, the the company was WWE was the biggest. So all the serious fans knew that. So you know, one more for the road. one more for the eighties. Yeah. Uh, well, then we'll wrap it up. What about sure. when uh, when uh, Ric Flair regained the title from Kerry Von Erich in nineteen eighty four? Here you have Ooh, two American wrestlers. It was actually uh, for hardcore fans. It was like, wow, this happens in Japan because it was David Von Erich. You know, the beginning of the episode was David Von Erich came to Japan without having a single match. He died in a hotel, right? Mm-hmm. David Van Eyck. Then for the, after this, uh, David Van Eyck's memorial, you know, uh, Texas Stadium match, Kerry Van Eyck beat Ric Flair for the first time and became world heavyweight champion, right? Then Kerry Van Eyck with that belt flew to Japan and actually had title defense in Japan. And then one week later that the flare shows up and he has program in Japan. And then the actual title switch. Well, I'm sure that was the only place in the schedule they could do at the time. But uh, champion Kerry Von Erich against challenger Ric Flair title match happened in Japan. And people didn't really expect much from it, but Actual title switch happened in Yokosuka, Japan. It was exciting, wasn't it? So, Ric Flair left Japan as a new champion. So, this historical match actually took place in Japan, and it's recorded. 
Well, these are some interesting perspectives, and I hope as you listen to the show, you get an idea <laughs> of what the mm. show is about, asking questions about history, talking about the differences between the two cultures when it comes to uh, wrestling that and dude. perceptions and all kinds of different things. Yeah. Let's do it again. Absolutely. So uh, here's what we're going to do. Uh, follow yeah. me on Twitter, at Jim Valley. He's Fumi Hiko Dayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O. And uh, yeah. use the hashtag AskFumi. Or you can uh, follow me or uh, him on Facebook, and we'll uh, throw out it. Once a week, we'll throw out the call to uh, ask some questions. But uh, hopefully this will get your mind flowing. But between now and then, th- we'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah. next week, we'll answer your questions, but we'll also talk about kind of what Fumi talked about, the influence of uh, ECW on Japan and uh, and vice versa. Vice versa, yeah. Perfect. Oh, that would be exciting. I think so. So follow us, spread the word, please share the podcast, let people know that you're enjoying it, that it's a great learning tool and uh, very entertaining for uh, wrestling fans, whether you've been watching a long time or you just want to learn more. Pacific Rim Wrestling, I think, is the podcast for you. You're going to gain a lot of knowledge from one of the greatest journalists and historians in wrestling today, and that is Fumi Saito. Well, I've enjoyed this. Yeah. All right. Well, Mm -hmm. from... From my end of the Pacific to yours, from Seattle to Tokyo, and Tokyo and all points in between. Sleepless in Seattle, huh? <laughs> yes, indeed. This has been Pacific Rim with Jim Valley and Fumi Saito, and we will catch you across the Pacific and at all points in between. Yeah.